the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control them? I believe they are. My opponents do not. to globalism is nationalism. This is the right take. How is it going, everybody? Welcome back to the right take. Episode number 94, our long march to 100 continues. We hope you all had a great St. Patty's Day weekend. I know I sure did. I'm Eric Lendrum here once again with my co-host, Jacob Grandstaff who uh, was not here last week, of course. And as you guys heard in episode 93, uh, once again, a special thanks and a shout out to our good friend, our mutual friend, Tim Kilcullen, for stepping in and answering the call of duty and being an in-studio fill-in guest host where he gave us very useful information on several important Supreme Court cases involving big tech and affirmative action and also recapping our CPAC experiences that we shared together. So thanks once again, Tim. You're a champion. This is, as you may already be able to tell from the title, episode three of our sub-series, The Long Take. Once again, that is an episode where we focus entirely on one 
large scale topic and just drill down on the specifics, the history, the importance, and the implications, among other things, of a single issue dictating our politics today. We previously did one on immigration, and then we did one on the Twitter files. And now we are doing one that I know this one's been waiting in the wings for quite some time. We've got a lot of sources for this one. I think this might actually be in terms of the sheer number of show notes we're going to have, which you can always find um, in the description of the page for the episode on our website, righttakepodcast.com. We got 25 links, Jacob. We got a lot of sources here for this deep dive into a very simple three-word question. What is woke. Now, this, of course, is a word we have heard a lot over the last few years. It's made its way onto a lot of uh, conservative authors' books and lots of merchandise, certainly. Um, but we got to say it. And I know this may sound a little cliche, but it's true. Most people are getting it completely wrong in their understanding of what woke means, the history of woke, and Subsequently, they're getting it wrong in their attempts to mock it and demonize it because they're they're wrong in just their initial assumptions of what it is. If you don't understand it, you can't properly attack it and or mock it. And this when we, I saw this story, uh, I knew you were going to want to bring this up, Jacob. This was just too good. The latest example of a conservative pundit completely and utterly failing <laughs> miserably to understand what woke means a woman by the name of Bethany Mandel. Now, who is Bethany Mandel? For a little bit of context, Jacob, you didn't even know this until just before we started recording. She is the wife of a Mr. Seth Mandel, who is the executive editor of the Washington Examiner and former op-ed editor for the New York Post. So not a great track record, a great resume there for Mr. Mandel, the Washington Examiner being one of the you know, most squish rhino publications ever, you know, featuring people like uh, Brad Palumbo and Tiana Lowe. And the New York Post, which, of course, was once great. You know, they still do some good investigative work when it comes to Biden corruption. But as we all know, they are part of the Rupert Murdoch machine, which is the enemy now, as far as we are concerned. They are against Trump. They do not really represent the populist right. So Mrs. Mandel did an interview a little while ago on a podcast called Rising, which is featured by The Hill. And this clip went viral, as she herself predicted in the moment live that it would go viral. The host asked her, the very simple question, what is woke? And this is just, you have to hear this to believe this. It's too good. And Americans consider themselves very liberal and probably fewer of them consider themselves to be woke. And so, you know, when, when well, we talk about traditional- What does that mean to you? Could, would you mind defining woke? Because it's come up a couple of times and I just want to make sure we're on the same page. So, I mean, woke is sort of the idea that- um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry i'm sorry i this I, is going to be one of those moments that goes viral I, 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 i'm sorry i just had to do that i had to do that because this it, it really is that painful to watch to and, and again the, the long pause yeah you, you've really got to watch the clip to fully grasp just how embarrassed this woman is the fact at the fact that she doesn't even know what the term is that she wrote a book about this like she wrote a book about woke and she can't even define it she literally yeah she's on this podcast promoting her new book which is called stolen youth how radicals are erasing innocence and indoctrinating a generation which interestingly enough again looking up for this episode she actually co-wrote this book jacob she had a co-author named carol markowitz 
So maybe Miss Markowitz is the one who wrote the chapter on Woke and Miss Mandel just skipped that chapter. So maybe that's why she doesn't know. But I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We got to be serious. We got to come back to this. This is super serious, guys. Let me take it back a little bit and uh, resume with the rest of the clip because this is important. I. This is going to be one of those moments that goes viral. I mean, Woke is something that's very hard to define and we've spent an entire chapter defining it. It is sort of the understanding that we need to re -to totally reimagine and re, re redo society in order to create hierarchies of oppression. Um, <laughs> sorry, I. It's it's hard to explain in a fifteen second soundbite. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm so, I had to do it again. I had to. I'm sorry. It's because otherwise that would literally be what is called in the radio industry. Too many seconds of dead air. It's just she just pauses, stops, windows XP shut down. It's dead silence as she tries to collect herself. So, rightfully so, she she in that moment predicted this is one gonna be one of those moments that goes viral. It did go viral. She got absolutely raked over the coals by Twitter, just like oh another conservative who just doesn't know what woke means. The, the tweet from that video we just uh, featuring the video we just played. Uh, it's posted by someone called The Vanguard at Vanguard Pod, who said, LOL, Brianna Joy Gray, that's the host of the show, breaks the brain of rising guest Bethany Mandel by asking her defi to define wokeness. And this was interesting, again, because once I looked up Bethany Mandel to, you know, find the original link or a video to that, there were several art other articles that popped up. One of them is from Slate that basically did a postmortem on just how, uh, on her humiliation, but reveals something interesting here. The headline of the article says, quote, I asked the woman who couldn't define woke the same question last year. The author is uh, Eamon Ismail, who said that back in 2022, uh, Mandel was again asked the question, uh, quote, what do you mean by wokeness? Mandel's answer is as follows, quote, so in terms of children, it's the idea of turning them dot, dot, dot. I think my best example is the board book Anti-Racist Baby, and it is dot, dot, dot. Hold on. I have it. I have the text somewhere. <laughs> the idea that you cannot be neutral, <laughs> that this is a fundamental reshaping of our society in the lens of anti-racism, in the lens of sexuality, that is not what we've traditionally thought. It's the idea that we're trying to turn our kids into modern warriors in these political battles about CRT and about sexuality and climate change and all of these things, end quote. So that was her original answer and a few months prior to this. For, spoiler alert. That answer is mostly incorrect. We will come back to this in a little bit. Uh, so Mandel, following this, again, she went viral. This is now arguably her most famous slash infamous moment in her entire career. She wrote a piece in Newsweek, kind of defending and herself. Just real quick, before we go into that piece, I just want to say that whenever I saw this piece pop up on Real Clear Politics, I was assuming that she was going to try to defend her definition of woke. Because she sort of hinted that it's about systems of oppression, which, by the way, that's not woke. That is called intersectionality. Mm -hmm. She's basically trying to use woke as a synonym for intersectionality. So I assumed that in this op-ed in, News, in Newsweek that she's going to try to defend her redefining of the word woke as a synonym for, for intersectionality. But that's oh, not what she does. That is not what she does. It is worse than I thought it was going to be. This is the most painful thing I've seen in politics since John Fetterman's debate with Dr. Oz. Like, it is, is brutal to read this. So here's a few and of And unfortunately, it's on our side. It's on our side. Yeah, there's no excuse for this one. Quote, Right before we went on air, I heard one of the hosts speaking about parents in what I perceived to be a negative way. I panicked. 
That's a whole separate word is the two words. A whole separate sentence is the two words. I panicked <laughs> over my career as a loud and proud, loud and proud breeder. I have often felt attacked by the left and braced myself to be ambushed on air about my own life choices as a mother of six children, end quote. I'm sorry. How did you not expect to be attacked or at least somewhat criticized or face serious pushback? You're going onto a leftist podcast. It's The Hill. They mm -hmm. they used to be moderate, sure, back in the day when they had John Solomon. Then they fired John Solomon and they just went full anti-Trump, full leftist. So how, do, how can you go onto this? Anything that's not Fox News or Newsmax or OAN, that's obviously going to give you a puff interview. How did you not expect to be criticized? I'm sorry. That's just a complete lack of situational awareness. Furthermore... She notes that she heard, in her own words, what she, quote, perceived to be a negative statement in what I perceived to be a negative way, end quote. Not even an outright negative statement. She admits that she perceived it this way. I I'm sorry, can you say her truth? You know, like the phrase that they used during the Kavanaugh hearings, that um, yeah. that crazy lady, mm -hmm. what was, yeah, it's her truth. It's her truth. It's her perception of what they said. Oh, it gets, it gets worse. It gets worse. Quote, throughout the entire interview, I felt a panic attack growing, but just tried to get through the duration of the appearance without an incident. As we talked, I was stammering and trying not to set traps for myself. Finally, I was left speechless at one question, the basic definition of the word woke. It was a fair question, after all. It's the centerpiece of my book's premise. But by that point... The panic attack had arrived, and I was rendered speechless. I, I'm sorry, but that's... Yeah, I'm sorry, but if you watch the clip, there's no sign of a panic attack. Absolutely no, no sign. I'm not saying she wasn't experiencing a panic attack, but she was just stumped. She wasn't she was hyperventilating. It's one she, of these issues. Well, yeah, she was perfectly fine. She was simply stumped. To continue that, that part of the excerpt, she says, Eventually, I sputtered out what I thought was a decent definition of the word, but by then it was too late. And so a reminder, by the way, again, it's not a real panic attack, but more importantly, she claims that this was all the result of a, quote, building panic attack because she was afraid of being criticized or attacked. Despite, here's the funny thing, she never actually was attacked in this interview. They didn't go, they didn't attack her. They didn't mock her children. They didn't say like, oh, you're dumb white woman or anything. They asked her, she was asked a fair question, but because in her mind, the perception that an attack was coming, she allowed this panic attack to happen. I'm sorry. This woman is clearly incapable of giving interviews to any outlet to the left of Fox News. She should not be doing interviews like this if she's going to get that stumped by such a straightforward question by an outlet like The Hill. This is where it crosses over into territory that literally a leftist could have and should have written this. Quote, As soon as we hung up, I broke into a sob. My husband and kids immediately surrounded me. I'm not usually a crier. In fact, the last time I got a bit tearful was two months ago towards the end of my home birth during the worst stage of labor called transition, end quote. Like, if you want to, if, if a leftist, if a feminist wanted to portray a conservative woman in the most stereotypical manner possible, Bethany Mandel is the perfect picture and the perfect caricature for that like that sentence is just that's gold for any feminist being depressed that you fail to answer a question properly is as painful as giving birth <laughs> like, I, I, oh my 
So here's the thing. Like, okay, she. We should definitely commend women for having lots of children. I mean, that's yes. that's what God intended. Yeah. But if you've got six children at home and you're raising your children, I don't remember if she said she's homeschooling. Or not. Actually, she, I think believe she said she is homeschooling them. Which is respectable. Why are you spending your time? Yeah. Why are you spending all this time on politics? Like, raise the kids, yeah. homeschool the kids, and then when the kids get grown, you're going to still have—she's young. Yeah. She's very—and she looks very good for her age. Like she's mm-hmm. late 30s. Yeah. So once the kids are gone, you've got plenty of time to engage in politics and write all the books you want. I mean, it's just a matter of time. Like, okay, so I understand you're you're very busy. You're very stressed. You're homeschooling six kids. you got a husband, you know, large family. Why are you adding all this extra stress and anxiety to your life by going on to liberal podcasts and trying to defend a book about a concept that you don't understand? Exactly. It's, and just, it's self-defeating. And like you said, she should spend time focusing on raising her kids. Her husband is still active in politics. He runs the Washington Examiner. Let him handle politics while you're yes, doing the duties yes, of a mother. <laughs> and then once the kids are grown up, then it's, it's, oh, it's so bad. And adding to this as well. The idea that all of her young children rushed around to comfort mommy after an interview that she couldn't quite deliver the goods on. I'm sorry, that's every bit as absurd and unlikely as the average Twitter leftist who will claim that their three-year-old child asked them a super sophisticated and articulate question about global warming or transgenderism. These leftists who are always like, my three-year-old trans daughter asked me, mommy, why does Donald Trump hate people like me? And I'm like, I'll take crap that never happened for $500, Alex. Thank you very much. Like, it's, it's the same yeah, yeah. crap the leftists do. And it just comes across as pathetic as an extreme appeal to pathos. To the point that, again, this story Mm -hmm. obviously doesn't come across as real. It just comes across as a pathetic excuse. Last uh, excerpt here, just had to, one more time. Quote, watching me cry and panic was not a sight my kids were used to seeing. Yet for the next day, they saw it a few more times. For the next day, I visibly struggled emotionally, end quote. So I I understand that a lot of times people uh, still haven't adjusted to internet culture and the the virality of the internet. So if they go if they go viral for a negative clip, then it could affect them long term. But this is kind of stuff that that people suffered from in the early two thousands. Yeah, like this is like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, when people were still used to being uh, buffooned on the internet. But at this point, if you're not, if you can't take the punches of going viral for a negative reaction and come back from it, you really Mm -hmm shouldn't be involved in public life. You shouldn't be in politics. This is one of those things where someone calls you a bad name and you go cry in the corner. You, obviously, you yeah. don't need to be in that arena. Exactly. I mean, it's if we all understand the internet, or at least certainly in our generation, you and I, Jacob, but in general, we haven't understand the internet that if nothing else, learn to laugh at yourself. Learn to make a mm-hmm. joke about yourself. That is the best way to disarm your critics. But of course, she has to do this, which... I'm sorry, at this point, she might as well have just used the word triggered. She might as well have said, I was triggered and I have PTSD now. Mm-hmm. This is like, you remember that one leftist, that absolute soy boy beta male loser who like, he went to a, a, a shooting range to fire an AR-15 and he wrote a piece about it saying like, shooting a gun is loud and very, very scary. And he claimed mm-hmm. that like, yep. I suffer from a temporary form of PTSD as he unironically said that. <laughs> so the point that like veterans groups and just people in general tore into him rightfully so saying how dare you ptsd is something veterans suffer when they watch one of their fellow soldiers get their face blown off right next to them and you're gonna claim you suffer ptsd because you pulled the trigger a couple times at a safe and secure location so admittedly and that guy i don't remember his name but he admittedly did a mea culpa he came out and said okay i'm sorry i shouldn't have said ptsd he apologized to the veterans 
So in that moment, this leftist soy boy had more self-awareness than Bethany Mandel does. It, and again, she's on our side, ostensibly. But then the responses on Twitter, uh, in the responses to that particular tweet featuring the video we played, of course, some white knights came out and tried to simp for her. Uh, some guy calling himself Mike the Mad Scientist tried to defend her with this line saying, quote, she's written extensively on it. If people don't have the attention span to read a book, she has no obligation to give them a 15-second summary of an incredibly broad topic, end quote. To which he then got roasted by another Twitter user who I think put him in his place with this point, uh, Dennis Trainer Jr., who said, quote, If you have written a book on it and you were on TV plugging your book, this 15-second summary is exactly what you should be prepared to give, end quote. And that mm -hmm. is correct. That's true. If you've written about this, if you actually wrote this book, assuming she didn't ghostwrite it or, again, that chapter was written by her co-author, she should have been prepared for the 15-second response. It proves she doesn't even understand what she's talking about, and she expects us to buy her book and just learn well, for ourselves? Yeah, I'm just going to – I'm not going to name any names, but we, we both know of other people, public figures on the right who have written books, like quote-unquote written books, mm -hmm. and it was actually ghostwritten, and they went on to interviews to try to talk about those books, and they yes. didn't know anything about the books or what was in them. And this is unfortunately what you see a lot with a lot of very privileged conservative activists. They will hire ghostwriters and pay yes. them $15 an hour to write for them, and then they are the face. Somehow or another, all these politicians and public figures have time to write 15 books in a five-year span. Obviously, they're not writing the books themselves. Exactly. And what it is is it's concepts. So they'll put out a concept. So like, uh, for instance, in this case, it's wokeness. They'll put out uh, – they understand that conservatives don't like the word woke. They understand it provokes a negative reaction, so they know that they can make a bunch of money by writing about wokeness. Even if conservative activists and voters don't know what it means, even if they themselves don't know what it means, they can hire someone to write about wokeness. That book will sell because of the terminology, and they will make a lot of money. They can go on podcasts and promote the book just by lampooning the quote-unquote woke. So then to finish off the Mandel thing here, again, we read back the answer she gave in that Slate article months earlier, which was incorrect. As, as you said, Jacob, it's more intersectionality than wokeness. So just to recap, again, without replaying it, uh, to summarize in quotes in between all the pauses, what she said at the end of that clip, the answer she finally gave was, quote, what is wokeness? The understanding that we need to totally reimagine and redo society in order to create hierarchies of oppression, end quote. Once again, this is not 100% incorrect, but it's still pretty far off the mark. Uh, and, and it certainly is a weak comeback after that epic fail. So enough delaying here. So, Jacob, what is the original definition of woke? Woke simply means awake. It yes. is in black American vernacular means to be awake. The, the Independent did an, um, a very good investigation on the history of the word woke. A UK and, newspaper, by the way, which is hilarious. But yes, the Independent. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, they, they did. I mean. This is the one uh, – this is what popped up first, but it's uh, – there's multiple newspapers, but mostly on the left because this is one of the things like leftists are accused uh, – they understand that uh, conservatives have taken this term and turned it into a slur, and there's like, like well, wait a minute. This isn't even something that we call ourselves. This is specifically African-Americans who created this terminology to express how they themselves were feeling. So the Independent talks about how uh, Boris Johnson was asked shortly after Joe Biden's election if Biden was woke. The prime minister answered that there was, quote, nothing wrong with being woke, but that it was important to stick up for your history, your traditions and your values and the things you believe in, which shows that Boris Johnson had a very slight understanding of woke. In other words, he saw it as being antithetical to not sticking up for your history, your traditions and your values. 
The Independent writes, the word woke is difficult to get away from the media and popular culture nowadays, but before the Black Lives Matter movement, it was barely known in the UK, despite having been used in the US throughout the early 2000s. Now, from a personal history, I first heard the word woke used on Twitter. I saw it used on Twitter around 2016, 2017 by black users. The Independent continues, Woke is currently used by the political left to refer to progressiveness and social justice, while those on their political right have weaponized it as a way to denigrate those who disagree with their beliefs. But where did the word come from and how did it arrive at this point? And I'm actually going to take issue with this particular paragraph because, again, this is a UK newspaper, so they're only seeing the terminology coming out of America secondhand. Woke is, has never been used by American progressives to describe themselves at all. Uh, climate activists, they never describe themselves as woke. Um, feminists, they never describe themselves as woke. This is something that a lot of progressives, some progressives may have used it to latch on to social justice causes surrounding race, but nothing beyond that. So the origin of the word woke. The phrase woke and to stay woke is not new. It began appearing in the 1940s and was first used by African-Americans to literally mean becoming woken up or sensitized to issues of justice, says linguist and lexicographer Tony Thorne. Mr. Thorne, a visiting consultant at King's College London, told The Independent that the word is rooted in African-American vernacular English and was used in American street and youth culture for a long time. In 1971, the phrase was used in a play by American playwright Barry Beckham titled Garvey Lives, in which he wrote, quote, I've been slipping all my life, and now that Mr. Garvey done woke me up, I'm going to stay woke, and I'm going to help him wake up other black folk. Now, Garvey, that's referring to Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey was a back-to-Africa activist in the 1920s and 30s who was a somewhat like, an, or like a precursor to a black nationalist. He pretty much wanted black people, first of all, to become aware of their blackness. In other words, to become um, – you know, really to become awakened to the fact that they are black, that they are not American, that they are not British, that they are not Jamaican, but they are first and foremost black. And then they need to, it's basically a pan-African movement. And so Marcus Garvey, he was one of the, the, one of the original, like, he was like a precursor to Malcolm X. And so this is what this American playwright Barry Beckham is talking about in Garvey Lives, talking about how Marcus Garvey woke people up and now he's going to wake up other black people to the suffering and the discrimination that they face. The Independent continues, it also entered popular culture thanks to singer Erica Badu, who used the phrase, quote, I stay woke in her 2008 song, Master Teacher. And then, of course, in 2014, after the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, sparked the Black Lives Matter movement, the word woke went viral on Twitter and it stayed viral. It has stayed viral ever since. But the average black person, like if you go, so Bethany Mandel isn't necessarily wrong. Um, she wouldn't be wrong if this was 20 years ago. The average black person 20 years ago who wasn't involved in black activist movements probably wouldn't know what the term, what the political definition of the word woke meant. So if you went back to, say, 2003 and just talked to black people in the streets and asked them, you know, are you woke? They would just kind of look at you weird, like, yes, I'm awake. Like, why are you asking me if I'm awake? I'm walking around talking. It wouldn't have, the political definition wouldn't have made much sense 20 years ago to your average black person. Unless they were involved, like unless they were college educated, maybe if they went to an HBCU or if they were involved in some sort of civil rights movement um, or activist group. But um, with the, the advent of Twitter and the Black Lives Matter movement after Michael Brown's death in Ferguson, the word woke entered the common black American vernacular and the average black person uh, became woke to the word woke. And of course, their understanding of woke was that they were now awakened to the oppression that black people in America faced at the hands of police, that black people in America faced um, by white society in general, and that this was basically um, 
white people's country and they were discriminated against because they were a minority. But that is that is the definition of woke. So it has nothing to do with climate change. Yes. It has nothing to do with feminism. It has nothing to do with the LGBTQIA through Z movement. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has everything to do with black people trying to awaken other black people to their perceived oppression. Exactly. So when conservatives say that, you know, abortion or global warming or transgenderism is woke, eh, that's incorrect. And we have just a handful of examples here. Uh, one of them is from uh, IJR. I believe that stands for Independent Journal Review. This was one of those websites that, if you remember, Jacob, it kind of popped up out of nowhere in like 2015, 2016 as like a, a center-right website featuring a lot of young contributors. Mm -hmm. it, was kind of, it was kind of a rising star in conservative publications, and they just kind of fizzled out and didn't go anywhere. But they had an article on, remember that horrible uh, Air Force recruitment ad of the lesbian who was raised by two mothers that was like animated. It was like a cartoon ad of like, it, it starts off, she's like, oh, I was raised by my two moms. And it literally shows her like going to like gay pride protests and stuff. And ultimately she joined the Air Force to discover herself, to go on a journey. IJR described that as woke, which is incorrect. Another example, uh, this is a, a fun one to, to make fun of, is the Babylon Bee, that popular conservative uh, satire website that not only they, they had an article making fun of the concept of woke with the title, quote, conservatives can't define woke, shouts leftists who can't define man or woman. Uh, so that, of course, that's it's kind of a, not a great comparison because, well, certainly the whole man and woman thing is they're doing it on purpose. The left is deliberately trying to change the definition of man, woman, gender, sex, what have you, because that's part of how they deconstruct society. It's the idea of critical theory, queer theory, critical race theory. It's all about question everything. There is no objectivity. Nothing has a definition. They are deliberately obfuscating and changing around and you know fudging around these definitions. Conservatives are unintentionally misunderstanding the word woke. They go around thinking they know what woke mm -hmm. means, but it turns out they don't. And again, it, and conservatives aren't doing it as part of an effort to dismantle the left. I mean, yes, sometimes, you know, this anti-woke stuff can mobilize voters because most voters don't understand what woke means. It can be useful in that sense, but it's not ever going to be a fatal blow to the left as we know it. The way the left is dealing a fatal blow to society as we know it by basically saying genders don't exist and little kids can mutilate their genitals because they feel like it. So on top of that, in addition to that article, well, I do oh, want to point oh, out, go ahead. I do, I do want to point out that one of the ways in which liberals always have an edge over conservatives is the fact that so yes. they, they create the definitions of words. They um, change language, change speech around to mean certain things and they continue to change it. So as soon as conservatives start to catch on to what something means then they, they immediately – liberals will change the name of it. And so the only people who actually keep up with it are liberals who are in the know. Now, um, Richard Hanania, the political science uh, scientist mm -hmm. Richard Hanania, whom we've cited many times on our show, he has come to the conclusion that liberals tend to dominate society for the simple reason that they have a higher IQ on average than conservatives. Now, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, that was not the case. I would, agree, I would have to agree with him today in the year 2023 that that is the case for the simple reason that most suburbanites today are liberals because most suburbanites today have college education – are college educated, and they achieved 
their wealth. They achieved their success in the American dream through their college education. Forty years ago, most suburbanites did not have a college education. They were financially independent of the university system. But when you have a middle class that has been it has gone through the ringer of leftist indoctrination in universities, obviously the most the most high achieving people, the people with the highest IQ who already have a higher IQ than other people, are the ones who are going to go to university. They are the ones who are going to land the good-paying jobs and achieve the American dream. But because most high-achieving Americans today are college-educated and they've been brainwashed, they now tend to be liberal. They are able to keep up with terminology, and they're able to continue to change terminology and define it on their terms. Oh, I wanna, so, if I may kind of push back on that a little bit, because they say higher IQ, which is literally like the objective measure of intelligence, you know, whether it's 70 IQ or whether it's 200 IQ, are, do they really have higher IQs just because they got a degree, which these days it's easier than ever to get a college degree? If no, you no, major, no, that, that's, uh, that's not what I'm saying. No, I'm saying that the that's higher what that's what achieving said. people. Yeah, the higher achieving in well, the sense that they no no that, well he's saying he's saying that liberals on average have a higher a higher average IQ which I would agree with but that's just because people who already have a higher average IQ they are going to be the ones who are going to be motivated to achieve the American dream whereas forty years ago it was much easier to achieve the American dream without a college degree compared to today. Oh, so, so 40 years ago, these liberals with a high IQ, they would have been conservatives 40 years ago because so, they wouldn't have gone through the indoctrination center that is university. You're saying basically they're already intelligent. They just become leftists by going to university. It's not that they are yes, smart because, because they're leftists. Okay, I guess Correct. that makes sense. Yeah, Correct. That's, that is depressing. So it's but because of true, the yeah. brainwashing. It's because of the brainwashing that they face in universities. That's the reason why they come out with a liberal worldview. Many of them aren't necessarily knee-jerk liberals. They, just, they have just, that's the only viewpoint they received in college. And so as a result, they are able to stay you know, five steps ahead of conservatives and dominate language and it basically define the conversation. And one thing that's really depressing is the first paragraph in this Babylon Bee article. <laughs> it, say, it says, liberals unable to define the words man or woman have angrily demanded conservatives give a singular definition of a term recently made up by liberals. Liberals did not invent the word woke. And this is one of the misconceptions of conservatives. And Part of it is ignorance, but I think part of it is also an intention on conservatives' part to stay away from race. Conservatives, especially Con Inc., does not want to get anywhere near race. They don't want to talk about race. They don't want to acknowledge that race exists. They don't want to talk about black people's grievances, whether they are justified or not. They simply want to take every grievance that black people have, with, again, whether they are justified or not, and push it over into liberals' domain. So they claim that liberals made up the word woke. Liberals did not make up the word woke. Progre white progressives never use the term woke to describe themselves, unless they're talking about being allies with uh, oppressed black people. All right. So then tying into that, this Babylon Bee, even beyond the misinterpretation of the word woke, this video isn't very funny in my humble opinion. It is a ridiculous, over-exaggerated caricature. But this is the skit they released kind of in conjunction with that, titled, Every woke company diversity meeting ever. That's a very a mouthful of a title, by the way. Horrible title. <laughs> I'm going to level with you all. The reason why we're having this meeting is because our numbers are in the toilet. So, obviously, it's time for us to have a very serious conversation about diversity. Here, here, her, her. So, all present members of the annual board meeting of the company's executive committee for the diversified unification of unity and representative reparative representation, please state your pronouns on three. One. Two, three. She, her, three, she herself. Three. Good. Before we publish our list of recommended advisory demands, 
it was brought to the committee's consciousness that we should take a moment to review our viewpoints on a variety of both views and points pointedly pertaining to the current collective consciousness. Yes. Absolutely. It's so important. After all, if we're not rightly representing representation, or our representation will require righteous and rigorous reparation. Yeah, and negating the necessitation of necessary nomenclature would be to stay silent. <laughs> silence is violence. Violence is silence. To stay silent on the violence of silence is the science of violence. You know, a while ago, Jacob, one of our one of our biggest hits on this show on YouTube, I think our most viral clip on YouTube, <laughs> I'm using that word loosely, was when we ripped into Amanda Gorman. Remember the poet, that awful slam poet <laughs> yeah. who performed at Biden's inauguration? This is basically just that. This is basically conservatives writing their idea mm -hmm. of slam poetry from a faux leftist standpoint. And it's all about words that sound similar and words that rhyme. And I'm just like, again, that when you... It's so much, it's clever at times. Alliteration is useful every now and then, but when you constantly do it over and over in one segment, we're just a minute into this, by the way, folks. When you overload it, it loses its impact, right? It's like when Hakeem Jeffries gave mm -hmm. that stupid speech where he said, you know, like, um, uh, allies over anger or something, and he was listing progressive uh, priorities over conservative priorities, and he went alphabetically with alliteration, A through B through C, all the way through Z. When you use alliteration that much as, as a linguistic tool, it loses its touch, and it's the same thing here. It's so bad. It's so cringe. But we have to get through this, at well, least to get through to the end of the video to understand just how bad well, this I do is. want to point out that the only people who would find this hilarious are people who have never set foot in a boardroom in their entire lives and yeah. never will. They're so never, those are the yeah. kind of people. Yeah, because they're never this overt about it. The reason they've gotten so successful at this, at subverting you know, corporate America and whatnot, is because they're subtle about it. It's very subtle. It's gradual. It happens maybe in a dark, smoke-filled room rather than a big, light, you know, brightly lit boardroom where everybody can hear it. But again, I digress. All that is sacrificed for the sake of presentation. Believe science. Follow the science. Listen to the science. In silence. The science of silence. Well, it's the only way to end violence. I'm sorry, can we take a moment to acknowledge the history of the history? After all, if we're not robustly researching our research, we're really restricting our racial reach. When what we're trying to do is race to reach the restricted. Absolutely. I mean, as a person of color. Ah! I agree with you. <laughs> But our perception of past perceivers must persevere past pre-planned preparations of primitive-minded <sighs> peoples. That must be the primary principle. Precisely. Perfectly put. Ultimately, we undermine our understanding if we overvalue, overemphasize utterances of over-educated oppressors. Without a doubt. Education will be the foundation on which this nation can hold any station. Full or representation. Or a world of pure imagination. Or inflation. I was gonna say fermentation, but... Accordingly, this board is of one accord. Huzzah! Where would this company be without us? <sighs> I can't. I'm no more. I'm no, sorry. It's sad that your average conservative will look at that as just and think that's funny. And again, it goes back to the power dynamic. <laughs> you know, the average person who all those thirty thousand likes on that video. These are people who will never set foot in a boardroom in their lives. Who's who don't have a single family member who will ever set foot in a boardroom in their lives. And it just shows the it, it really this is the power dynamic that we face in the country. Liberals control the corporations conservatives work for the corporations. So this is basically conservatives by having a laugh at their betters, at their financial betters, they can make themselves feel good. But they don't understand the way – so they know they don't have any power. They don't understand why they don't have any power. They don't know how to fight back against the people who do have power who are oppressing them because they don't understand any of the terminology that's being used to oppress them. And this is why you get videos like this that are purported – that are trying to be funny and really just come off as ridiculous. Exactly. And again – 
incorrect. None of that is wokeness. Now, to be clear, what are examples of things that are woke? Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, and affirmative action, because these are race-based policies. And in particular, in all three cases, they primarily focus on African-Americans. Of course, Black Lives Matter, that goes without saying. Critical race theory was very much focused on, you know, systemic racism from slavery, you know, the 1619 Project all the way up to now. And affirmative action, yes, affirmative action does also benefit Hispanics. It's widely documented. It, it disadvantages whites and Asians and disproportionately provides advantages to African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans. But it was part of that kind of civil rights era type policies that was meant primarily to boost African-Americans. So now you have an idea. As long and, and to be clear— just to be clear, these are movements and policies that come from people being woke. Like mm -hmm. these aren't these policies aren't actually can't actually be described as woke. They are the result of people becoming woke. So then let's look at a few examples beyond like policies and movements, a few examples of woke rhetoric. And I was just kind of I was scrolling through Twitter just before we started this episode, Jacob. So I found this. Uh, this is astounding. I had never seen this clip before. This is an older clip, apparently. This is from 2005. It's recorded on C-SPAN, so you can find it online. It's not exactly, it's not like they've been scrubbing this clip. You think they would try to scrub it with what's been said here. In 2005, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, a black author named Kamau Kambon, the owner of a business called Blacknificent Books, gave a speech in which he, in no uncertain terms, explicitly calls for the extermination of white people. I'm not kidding, here's the full clip. So their system is not stopping. And then finally, I wanna say that we need one idea and we're not thinking about a solution to the problem. We're dealing with all these other things, but these are diversions from the solution to the problem. And we have to start to think about a solution to the problem so that these young brothers and sisters who are here now, who are 15, 16, and 17, are not here 25 years later talking about these same problems. Now, how do I know that the white people know that we are going to come up with a solution to the problem? I know it because they have retina scans. They have what they call racial profiling, DNA banks and they're monitoring our people to try to prevent the one person from coming up with the one idea. And the one idea is how we are going to exterminate white people, because that, in my estimation, is the only conclusion I have come to. We have to exterminate white people off of the face of the planet to solve this problem. Now, I don't care whether you clap or not, but I'm saying to you, that we need to solve this problem because they are going to kill us. And I will leave on that. So we have to just set up our own system and stop playing and get very serious. So, again, and the applause is the most terrifying part of that. that a smattering of applause, but applause nonetheless, that, that gathering there. Again, in the aftermath of Katrina, there was this again, bogus narrative that like, oh, this is about systemic suppression of white people that or of black people. Bush doesn't care about black people. He's letting black people suffer in the aftermath of Katrina, which we all know wasn't true. That was a matter of uh, the mayor of New Orleans, uh, who was black, by the way, deliberately being incompetent. Yeah, refused help from the federal government. Bush said, FEMA's ready to go. We'll come in there and help you out. And the mayor said, no, stay out. We don't want your help. But, of course, they blamed it on Bush, and that, along with the Iraq War, was just one of the two things that really uh, destroyed Republicans in the 2006 midterms and led to Bush having such negative approval ratings. But 
And let's be clear, of course, a counter-argument to that may be, oh, that just sounds like one a one-off instance. That's just some psychopath. That's a fringe minority. He doesn't represent the mainstream by any means. And, and yes, this clip is 18 years old. But 18 years later, this rhetoric has spread dramatically, that there is now just consistent mainstream anti-white rhetoric. Let's go through just a few examples here. Um, an article that I wrote for American Greatness uh, way back in the day titled, quote, Medical Journal article calls whiteness a, quote, parasitic-like condition. This was a claim made in the Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association. Um, the article titled On Having Whiteness was written by Dr. Donald Moss, who is a faculty member of both the New York uh, Psychoanalytic Institute and the San Francisco Center for Psychoanalysis, who himself is a white man, which is interesting that he would write this. Um... He claims that white people suffer from, quote, an entitled dominion, end quote, that allows the disease's host to demonstrate, quote, force without restriction and violence without mercy. He describes whiteness as parasitic and a condition to which, quote, white people have a particular susceptibility. And just on and on and on. Again, all these links will be in the description. That's a that's a peer-reviewed medical journal, by the way, basically saying the color of your skin makes you a parasite. And of course, parasites universally are considered a bad thing. And what are you supposed to do with a parasite? You're supposed to, as uh, that... Uh, exterminate it. Exterminate it, as Mr. Cambon would say. Uh, going on here, another article I wrote for AG, titled, quote, New York psychiatrist admits in Yale lecture to fantasizing about shooting white people. Comments were made by Dr. Aruna Kilananani during a lecture to the Yale School of Medicine on April 6th, 2021. She has dreams of, quote, unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way, end quote, and that if she were to do so, she would leave the scene of the crime, quote, with a bounce in my step, end quote. She also went on to say that white people, quote, make my blood boil, end quote, and also went on to say that white people, quote, are out of their minds and have been for a long time. This is a, again, this is a psychiatrist in New York City giving a lecture to Yale, one of the most elite universities in the country, which means she was paid to give that lecture. Easiest way to do it, as cliche as it is, is reverse the roles. Jacob, my God, can you imagine if a white person gave a lecture saying that they want to unload a revolver into the head of the first black person they see and then walk away with a bouncing their step? What would, I mean, Well, game is, over, right? That all, person's done. Yeah, all of this, of course, they would, they would never be hired again. They would never give another speech again. In fact, they would probably be, they would probably have their house burned down. But this is the result. All of, all of this rhetoric is the result of wokeness. So wokeness leads to this rhetoric. Wokeness leads to these attitudes. So if you, if a person becomes woke, they become awake to the fact that black or the idea, the belief that black people are being oppressed by white society. If you believe as a black person that black people are oppressed by white society, you then need to come up with a solution. How do you solve this problem? If white people in general are all racist, if white society is racist and oppressive to your people, how do you solve that problem? Historically, there's, all, there's usually been a few ways that minorities would solve that problem. One is they would advocate for separation. So mm -hmm. they would demand their own separate country. 
that's simply not possible in the United States of America because black people are spread out throughout the entire country. If black people were all located in one state, that would be a possibility. That is not a possibility in America because black people are in every state across the country. So the other option is, well, if we're being oppressed by the majority, then we need to exterminate the majority. And your average black person is not going to agree with that. Like that's something that you're like, that's something that you're, you know, your fringe minority might say in the aftermath of a hurricane in which black people are most of the victims. So they would understand that if you really want to solve the problem of white supremacy, you have to get white people to stop seeing themselves as white. In other words, you have to deracialize white people. If you can't exterminate white people, you need to reeducate the future generations of white people so that they see themselves and their ancestors as oppressors, and they take no pride in their history. They take no identity in being white. And so that's the, that is the second best option to living in a society free of white people, which is why you see critical race theory being pushed at the grade school level. That's why you see universities trying to their best, because they tried for decades to indoctrinate people in university, but most college students simply want to get, a, get an A, so they can get out and get a job. They're not going to really focus too much on that. So that's why they're moving younger and younger because they understand if they can capture the minds of elementary school children, then they will be able to successfully brainwash future generations of white people to hate themselves, to hate their ancestors. And that's why you have books. Yeah, that, that's, that's what getting rid of whiteness means. Yeah, basically. Basically, if you're not going to outright exterminate them like that crazy guy in 2005 advocated for, you make them hate themselves so much that they're basically – Oh, white in appearance only, right? That internally yes. they hate themselves, which is why uh, the one thing in Bethany Mandel's uh, first answer mentioned in the Slate article, she cited the book Anti-Racist Baby, which literally is a book about how do you make babies. The idea that white babies, toddlers, are racist just subconsciously because they're white. So that that is what you're getting at here. So yeah, you mentioned it real quick. Let's talk about what is the flagship of woke ideology Critical race theory. We Now, this one is a very important topic. This one, I think, when conservatives try to define it, they do a slightly better job at it than defining woke. But just to be clear, this is how I always describe it when I write my articles. This is the, the correct definition. Uh, Jacob, I'm sure you'll agree. Critical race theory, very simply, is the idea that all white people are automatically racist. And therefore, America, as a country that was founded, yes, by white people— America is an inherently racist nation, and that, that's basically all there is to it. Of course, it, in terms of the major uh, written projects that really exemplify critical race theory is the 1619 Project at the New York Times by Nicole Hannah-Jones. And, of course, there was that uh, controversy a while back when um, University of North Carolina was getting ready to hire her and give her a position there. And we have an article here from National Review mentioning that the dean of UNC's journalism school worried— that, quote, diversity of thought, end quote, would stand in the way of the school's social justice objectives. This, of course, is at the time that, you know, the people were protesting, like, how dare you hire this woman who's a hardcore racist? She just hates all white people. But of course, their commitment to diversity, diversity, quote unquote, in terms of skin color, trumps diversity of thought. That, of course, in academia, you don't have a lot of conservatives. You all you have nothing but leftists. So he basically says, yeah, we would rather have a black woman who hates all white people than diversity of thought in terms of having conservative academics. And of course, unfortunately, she did ultimately get that position despite uh, efforts to boycott her hiring. And another one of the lead thinkers behind critical race theory is Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote a interesting and surprisingly, uh, again, introspective article on critical race theory for The Atlantic 
in the aftermath of Glenn Youngkin's victory in the Virginia elections, the red wave that swept Virginia due in large part to critical race theory. So this was written the Atlantic shortly after Youngkin won. He wrote, the danger more Republicans should be talking about. And it's funny, every time that a Republican wins a high-profile race, like in a state like Virginia, where they're mm -hmm. quote-unquote not supposed to win, yes. you see every major leftist publication come out with an article by their most radical writers talking about how America is becoming racist again. Yeah. And, and it never fails. It's every single time that a Republican wins in a state that's not dark red. So he wrote, the danger more Republicans should be talking about. The day after Glenn Youngkin won the Virginia governor's race last November, a Wall Street Journal headline declared Youngkin makes the GOP the parents' party. Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio, of Ohio exulted, it, exulted in this new party line on Twitter. The Republican Party is the party of parents. Polling data showed this new branding to be as misleading as the GOP's framing of critical race theory. In a September Fox News poll, white respondents opposed the teaching of critical race theory by 24 percentage points, while respondents of color were more than twice as likely to favor CRT than oppose it. So this is another thing that Bethany Mandel just gets wrong when she claims that most African-Americans are liberal, but they're not. They wouldn't describe themselves as woke. Maybe they wouldn't actually use the terminology woke, but they definitely agree with woke ideology. A majority of people of color or non-white people in Virginia support the teaching of critical race theory. Kendi goes on. William Salatin at Slate concluded, quote, when Republicans talk about a parental backlash against CRT, they're not talking about all parents. They're talking about white parents. And he is 100 percent correct. Michelle Ruiz summed up in Vogue what has since emerged as the near consensus. Quote, the GOP doesn't want to be the party of parents. It wants to cement itself as the party of white parents. Now, if only that were true, but that's not the reason why they get that impression is because 90 percent of GOP voters tend to be white. The Republican Party is clearly not the party of parents. The Republican Party is certainly not the party of parents of color, but the Republican Party, but is the Republican Party even the party of white parents? This new branding is a myth, a great myth. It is fictitious and dangerous as the great lie that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from Donald Trump. The foundational assumption of this great myth is that Republican politicians care about white children. But if they did, then they would not be ignoring or downplaying or defending or bolstering the principal racial threat facing white youth today. And I'm not talking about critical race theory, which Republican propagandists have quite intentionally redefined as one admitted, remaking it into a threat and obscuring the real threat. What are white children being indoctrinated with? What is making them uncomfortable? What is causing them to hate? White supremacist ideology. The toxic blend of racist, sexist, ableist, homophobic, transphobic, Islamophobic, xenophobic, and anti-Semitic ideas. John, a father of two, knew that his 15-year-old white son enjoyed playing multiplayer shooting games online, according to NPR. In games like Counter-Strike, Global Offensive, players formed teams online with friends and strangers. John knew that his son talked with teammates in private online chats. This is the norm for kids, John told NPR. Instead of hanging out at the drive-in, they're all online. Many white supremacist recruiters are online now, too, and Johnson started gaming with some of them. These grown men asked this impressionable teenager about his problems in school. They suggested that his black classmates were to blame and passed along racist literature. Can I just say I doubt that story 100%. I'm, I'm guarantee you this story, all that happened is gamers online, you know, in, in any of these games, CSGO especially, they talk crap in their lobbies, and sometimes they will be edgy and use racial slurs. That's probably, it's for the sake of being edgy, they don't actually mean it. That's probably the extent of what really happened to this guy's kid. I don't believe for a second that KKK neo-Nazi types were passing along the copies of the Turner Diaries to their kid playing CSGO. I'm sorry, I don't buy that. So, Kinty continues. But the exposure to white supremacy through online video games is eclipsed by the 17% of 13 to 17-year-olds who encounter white supremacist views on social media. TikTok's abundance of, user, of young users makes it a major recruiting ground for white supremacists. 
One study of TikTok videos promoting extremist views found that almost a third amplified white supremacy. And yet there might be more white supremacist material preying on vulnerable young people on Instagram than on TikTok. So I'm not going to read this whole article, but Kendi's entire point throughout this op-ed is that we need to teach critical race theory because white kids are the number one victims of white supremacists. So in other words, if we don't teach kids, so he's trying to frame it as, uh, you know, critical race theory is actually to protect white children. So this, you know, parents, we can't trust white parents to indoctrinate their kids to be anti-white supremacist. So we need to rely on the public school system to educate their kids to be anti-white supremacist so they'll know to reject white supremacist ideology when it pops up online, which is really a twisted. So pretty much he's saying that the public school system needs to save white children from themselves. Oh, my God. Yes. And so if we save white children from themselves, then they won't be voting in whenever they grow up. They won't act like their parents and elect people like right. Youngkin. And we kind of saw that in 2022 where, yeah, the parents came out to vote for Republicans, you know, against, you know, critical race theory and all that stuff. But the kids also turned out to vote. All the kids who are eight Zoomers are now mostly 18 years old. They are old enough to vote and they believe this garbage. And they turned out and basically canceled the red wave. This is something that conservatives need to understand. Critical race theory works. They would not be pushing it if it didn't work. Exactly. If you can educate young minds that their parents are racist, that their ancestors were racist, that there's no, they should not take any pride in being white. They should not take any pride in the country that their white ancestors helped found. If you can brainwash them from a young age, that when they grow older and when they become adults, and I'm sure you've met people just as I have, who literally hate their own country. They hate America. They yep. hate everything about America. They hate America's history. If Amer- Even if it's a sporting event, they have nothing good to say about Team USA. They have everything good to say about other cultures, other peoples. They have nothing good to say about their own people. They find nothing of beauty in their own people and their own culture, their own country, their own history. When you are attacked from a very young age to believe that there is nothing of beauty in your ethnicity or your culture, you're going to believe it. Young minds will believe just about anything that they're taught. And that's why we don't need this is one of the reasons why libertarians are so bad at this stuff. (laughs) I'm not interested in presenting young American minds with options. They are going to be brainwashed one way or the other. Either they're going to be brainwashed to hate themselves or they're going to be brainwashed to love themselves. They're going to be brainwashed to hate their country. They're going to be brainwashed to love their country. There is no in-between. Yes, once they get older and they can become more discerning, then they can develop more of a nuanced view of history. But there's a reason why every country's history, like every serious country's history books in elementary school, They present everything through rose-colored glasses. Daniel Boone was a hero, period. Mm -hmm. George Washington was a hero, period. Thomas Jefferson was a hero, period. There's no nuance. It's these were the good guys. The British were the bad guys. Like this, this was it, cut and dry. Now, once they become older, then they can, you know, learn the story of the dissidents who sided with the British and whatever and learn to sympathize with the other side. But that's more for adults. As kids, they need to be taught to love their country to hate their enemies like this is like i'm being a little bit hyperbolic there but i mean this is what you need brainwashing patriotic brainwashing when they are young and libertarianism simply does not want to do that (laughs) and that's why libertarians should not have a seat at the table in the modern right and real quick to finish up the whole point about crt again effective ways to combat it politically glenn youngkin did this perfectly but if you're going to get down into the weeds of like punditry about it I came across this thread a while ago, an argument between two intellectuals who are very well informed about critical race theory. 
Darren Beatty and James Lindsay. Uh, Darren Beatty is an incredibly smart guy. He's the founder of Revolver News. Uh, everyone should go follow him at Darren J. Beatty. That's D-A-R-R-E-N-J-B-E-A-T-T-I-E. He had this nice little thread about how basically if you're going to go after CRT, break it down to the simplest definition possible that everybody can mm -hmm. understand. Don't waste time on your long your prof professorial lectures. He says, quote, CRT is fundamentally anti-white. Anyone who disputes this is a moron or a coward trying to deceive you. Beyond this, there seems to be some confusion as to the importance of understanding the philosophical pedigree of anti-white CRT. In the next tweet, he says, quote, I don't object to reading critical theorists per se, but the notion that somehow understanding critical theory unlocks the secret of wokeness or gestures toward a solution to wokeness is ridiculous. You don't fix wokeness by refuting any theory. And there are several more tweets in the thread. Uh, again, all these links will be in the description. To which James Lindsay, who, again, fancies himself one of the big you know, experts on critical race theory, he retweeted the original tweet and simply said, quote, this dude left the reservation. Sayonara. So he's implying that Darren Beatty, again, very eloquent, well-spoken statement there. Oh, this guy's crazy, supposedly. To which Beatty responded to him saying, quote, and this dude is very much on the reservation where he'll remain. Enjoy the playpen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, but, but basically, James Lindsay's approach, if you ever watch an interview with this guy on Fox News or anything, he always has to spend the whole eight-minute segment, what have you, giving a, a PhD's thesis on how CRT can be traced all the way back to the writings of Antonio Gramsci. And I, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, that may be true. But you oh, are not going to win the non-college educated white rural voters in Virginia who voted more for Glenn Youngkin than for Donald Trump because you explained the connection between CRT and Antonio Gramsci. All right. It's not yes. going to work. It's not going to so work. So here's the problem. This is the problem with a lot of big brain conservatives is they, they misunderstand that they, they think that there's a lot more of themselves than there actually are. This was true with never Trumpers as well. They were. They lived in this little bubble of intellectual right wingers who believed that there were more of them than there actually were in the country. Because of the leftist indoctrination in our university system, there are very, very few right wing intellectuals. There are very few center right mm -hmm. um, intellectuals in this country. Like ninety percent of intellectuals, of big brain intellectuals in America, are left wing. Yes, they believe America is racist. They believe black people are oppressed. They agree one hundred percent with woke black people, and you're not going to win many of them over. So if you he is 100% correct. If you want to make the average person understand what CRT is, if you want to make the average person understand what woke is and allow and empower the average white person to fight against that stuff at the voting booth, then you need to break it down in the simplest terms possible. Yes. Talk yes. to them like they are third graders. And I'm not knocking your average Trump voter. I'm just being realistic. Yeah. They work in factories. They work in restaurants. They do. They work with their hands. They're hardworking people who use manual labor to make a living. They did not go to college. And it's not their fault that they only have a third or fourth grade education. That's the fault of our public school system. Our public school system left them behind in the third or fourth grade. It's not because they're dumb. It's not because they're purposely uneducated. It's because our tax-funded education system absolutely sucks. Yes. And if you don't have, if your parents don't have the money to send you to college, you don't really have many options. You know, you have to just go work at the local deli or work for a construction worker, or whatever, making eleven, twelve dollars an hour. So you need to understand that these are the people that you're trying to empower. You're trying to empower them economically, politically. If you want to educate them, you have to break this down into terms that they understand. And they understand anti-white. Yes. They understand an ideology that wants to exterminate them spiritually. 
They understand an ideology that wants to completely, that wants to make their children and grandchildren hate them. That's very easy to understand. And the problem with big brain intellectual conservatives is they want to deracialize everything. They want to create a world in, that is basically 2008 liberalism, where everyone is colorblind, race doesn't matter, race doesn't exist, it's all a figment of our imagination. And I'm sorry, that's just not, that's not reality. Like ethnicities are real. Ethnicity is a thing. It's always going to be a thing. And that leads us to, again, the we're talking about examples of wokeness and woke ideology that have come to fruition in real life. For the, the grand finale of this, for this particular uh, segment of the show, we have to talk about this. Uh, again, we didn't talk about it as it happened, but it must be talked about now in the context of this subject, the Scott Adams saga. So Scott Adams, of course, has been canceled. Dilbert is now out of every single newspaper. And how did it happen? Again, we got to go back to what started it all. He was responding to a survey from Rasmussen Reports, which, again, is like the go-to conservative pollster. They generally give more positive answers in a right-wing direction than any other pollster. But they had a survey of basically asking respondents whether or not they agree with the statement, quote, it's okay to be white. And the result of the survey showed that 72% of respondents overall agreed with that sentiment. Breaking it down along racial lines— 53% of black Americans agreed with the statement, it's okay to be white. So what does that mean? What basic math, what Scott Adams focused on is the fact that that means 47%, Mitt Romney's favorite number, 47% of black Americans, by logical conclusion, don't agree with that sentiment. By a six-point margin, a narrow margin, just a little over half agree that basically the other, the 47% basically say, no, it's not okay to be white. And what does that mean? That leads to people like that crazy Yale psychiatrist who says she wants to go out and shoot white people because they're white. Mm -hmm. So he did a rant that got him canceled, and we're going to play a little bit of it here. And I'll just uh, uh, let's just play just a snippet of this. So if if you know nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, uh, that's a hate group. That's a hate group, and I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I would say, you know, based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Just get the fuck away. Wherever you have to go, just get away. (laughs) He could have worded it a little better. Um, He goes on to say that that's what he did. He's like, that's what I did. I went to a neighborhood with basically, in less words, not a lot of black people around. So that got him canceled. That got him just completely, like, actually canceled. He's done. His livelihood is completely done. Um, And interestingly— And the thing is, like, people will criticize that, but that's honestly the way most people think. They just won't admit it. If you look at where people are moving, if you look at moving patterns across the country, the, this goes all the way back to the 1950s. You, you look at where white people move when they move. Like they don't, they don't say that. They they won't publicly, won't verbally express that. But their dollars speak for themselves, and they vote with their feet. Like they move to exits down the interstate whenever their neighborhood starts to become too black. That's just the way that's just the way people operate. Maybe it's a lot of it is probably subconscious. A lot of white people in America probably don't intellectually think, okay, well, I've seen three black families move into my neighborhood, so I'm going to sell my home and move down the interstate. No, they probably notice they probably start hearing the gunshots. And it's like, okay, this is the third gunshot in two weeks. 
I think I'm going to sell my home before the price starts to plummet and I'm going to move down the interstate a little bit. I mean, it's just a lot of it is subconscious, but he's not wrong. Like that's generally how people think. And again, in response to this survey, like, yeah, that's kind of concerning that almost half of a particular ethnic group, it'd be the same if, you know, half of Asians or half of Hispanics said the same thing. And again, if the roles were reversed, if a narrow majority of white people agreed with the sentiment, it's okay to be black, the media the media wouldn't focus on that. The media would focus on 47% of white people don't think it's okay to be black, and you would never hear the end of it. Interestingly enough, one person who came to Scott Adams' defense is none other than the savior of Twitter himself, Elon Musk. Uh, in response to a, a tweet from an account called At Monitoring Bias, who summarizes the Scott Adams story thusly, uh, Monitoring Bias says, quote, Adams was horrified that a poll of black people showed only half believe it's okay to be white. He called this hate and recommended white people live far away from blacks. Mainstream media verdict, Adams is a racist, but not the 20 million black people who think it's not okay to be white, end quote. To which Elon Musk simply responded with, the media is racist. He then posted another tweet after that mm -hmm. saying, quote, for a very long time, U.S. media was racist against non-white people. Now they're racist against whites and Asians. Same thing happened with elite colleges and high schools in America. Maybe they can try not being racist, end quote. So basically, uh, excusing what Adam said it, through the context of, well, the media has done this. The media has produced this racism against white people. Which you can argue that that's true. That absolutely is the fault of the mainstream media, you know, promoting this stuff and subsequently basically opening the gate, the floodgates for corporations and schools and everybody else to, to basically say, oh, it's okay, like solidarity, Black Lives Matter. So I do think it's interesting that he, of all people, one of the most important people, like influential people in the world today, very tacitly gives his support for what Adam said. Again, in much nicer language than how Adams put it, uh, but still very telling yeah. nonetheless. Yeah, it is interesting that Musk would weigh in on that. But if you if you look at mu what Musk actually said, like like you mentioned, he blamed the media. And this is what you'll see amongst a lot of very successful, highly educated conservatives is they don't want to talk about race. They don't want to blame anything on racial politics or identity politics. They want they always want to go back to blaming liberals. They just want to blame the white liberal for creating all this division. So in their minds, I don't know if they're, I mean, some it's probably a mix, but some of them actually believe this. Others are do understand that race is real, and they're just using this as a cover to avoid being accused of being racist. But they always want to blame the white liberal for creating division. So in their minds, there would be no racial division, no racial strife, and that's just not true. The, the white liberal didn't create critical race theory. Black intellectuals created critical race theory. The white liberal did not introduce the word woke into black English. Black Americans themselves introduced the word woke into black English. So one of the criticisms, and this is a valid criticism um, by black people of white people, is that a lot of whites will take words that are part of black English, the black English vernacular, and they'll start using it themselves. This is true with the N-word. Like a lot of whites, especially a lot of really naive suburban whites who didn't really interact much with black people growing up, they'll hear black slang and they think it sounds cool. They'll see all the bling of rappers and everything. They think that looks cool. And so they'll start acting black. They'll start talking black. And that's offensive to a lot of black people, and understandably so, because you've got these whites who don't understand their culture who are misappropriating aspects of their culture and oftentimes 
you know, not even understanding the definition of the words that they're using. So in that independent article, there was an embedded tweet. And this is a response to John Cleese. John Cleese wrote, this is not the way I see it. A lot of woke behaviors seem to be, uh, seem to me posturing, striking attitudes that allow them to experience the lovely warm glow of moral superiority while justifying their own aggression by using denial and projection defenses. Franklin Center wrote in the pictures of a black guy. So I'm assuming that Franklin Center is black. He writes, ironic, black folk made woke to represent awakening from evil centuries of old racist conditioning. Now look, y'all hijacked and twisted it into something ho- some hollow caricature devoid of meaning that you ridicule and fight over it just like everything else we created. Man, sincerely, F all of you. And this is the way a lot of black people understandably feel about the way that white people take words that are in their vernacular and misrepresent them. And this is true with the Karen meme. Like, Karen was, it originated from some 2000 show to uh, mean like a a woman who was, I I don't really know the show or the the origin of it, but black people basically took that and used it as a way to demean middle-aged white people, uh, middle-aged white women, particularly white women who would call the police or call the manager on unruly black people. And now you have white people throwing it around to describe white women without even realizing that it's actually a racist term against white women. And, but again, because white people are so, and this is kind of really, it kind of reinforces the truth that black people constantly cling to that white people are privileged and they don't recognize their own privilege and the position that they have in society. I mean, it's when one aspect that's being, admittedly, it's admittedly kind of true, I guess, especially when you talk about appropriating like rap, rap culture. Like that's admittedly a good point that they have that is annoying that white people do. Like that's true to be fair. Yeah. And this is what's happening with woke because you have a lot of really privileged, wealthy conservatives who really don't want conservatism to go into any kind of a racial direction. They really don't want any kind of white identity to develop as a backlash to the oppression that poor white people are facing in this country and being by being discriminated against by all the institutions. So they take these terms like woke and reappropriate it to be a liberal term, like a made up word, like the Babylon Bee said, this made up word that liberals created. Liberals didn't create woke. Liberals don't even call themselves woke. This is specifically a word created by black people for black people to describe feelings that black people face. Now, if you talk to the average conservative, they would argue, well, black people aren't actually oppressed. And I would agree with them. Or they would argue, okay, maybe black people were oppressed in the past, but they shouldn't feel constantly oppressed today. And I would agree with that. And they would come up with these arguments for why black people should completely abandon the idea of being woke. And that's all fine and well, but it doesn't change the definition of woke. It doesn't change the original definition of it. So you can disagree with the premise that black people will cling to without trying to change the definition. And that's what conservatives have done, unfortunately. Exactly. And while we're on it, too. So we talked about, of course, how woke is specifically a race based thing. It's not transgenderism. It's not abortion. It's not global warming. It is a focus on race. But more specifically, as you just said there, Jacob, perfectly, it was created by black activists for black people. Now, recent attempts by the left, admittedly, not by the right, by the left, have tried to apply the same standards of wokeness to other races, and it has failed miserably. And nothing exemplifies this better than the absolute failure of hashtag stop Asian hate. That every time I think about that phrase, I don't know about you, Jacob, I get a smile on my face because it was such a it was a disaster in terms of PR, in terms of messaging, and they went hard on it. I, again, I live in the D.C. area. I remember seeing bus stops and kiosks in Union Station with signs, 
showing hashtag stop Asian hate. Hate is not an opinion. Hashtag stop Asian hate. They put money, public funds into promoting this and it was a complete failure. So we got to talk a little bit, of course, first off about why stop Asian hate in particular failed and why in general wokeness won't apply to other minorities. So basically all attempts to mainstream SAH were DOA because first off, every single major example the left tried to use as proof that Asian Americans are suddenly facing systemic racism and, and race-motivated violence, like black people being hunted down the streets by cops, they all failed because every single one, the ones that are caught on camera at least, every single example from San Francisco to New York City, from sea to shining sea, the culprits were always young black men. I think almost exclusively. I don't remember any, I don't remember Asians. I mean, sometimes Asians were attacked by other Asians, but I can't yes. remember one single instance in which a white person came up to a, an Asian person and attacked them. The, the one instance they tried to draw from was that shooting in Georgia where this kid who was addicted to porn and addicted yes. to going to these Asian salons uh, took out his own frustration by going and killing people in the salons, but he didn't target Asians. He just no. went in and started randomly shooting. And most of the people, most of his victims just happened to be of Asian ancestry. Right. The first big example, basically the catalyst for the Stop Asian Hate movement, their attempt at creating a, a George Floyd type moment for Asian Americans was the killing of Vicha Ratanapakti, an 84-year-old Thai American who was shoved to the pavement, to the pavement and viciously beaten to death on, Feb on January 28th, 2021 in the streets of San Francisco. The culprit was 19-year-old Antoine Watson, a black teenager. And this was caught on camera by, like, surveillance uh, camera in the street, very clearly showing the suspect was black. Like, you, you cannot avoid that fact. Other prominent examples, all of which, by the way, these are not just cherry-picked. These are examples listed on the Wikipedia page. If you go to the Wikipedia page for Stop Asian Hate, towards the bottom, there's the section of See Other, you know, See Also These Articles, and it lists these examples. These are the ones sanctioned by Wikipedia, which is controlled by the leftists. September 19th, 2020, E. Lee, uh, the name is literally, the first name is literally just E.E., -E, two letter E's, and then last name Lee, an Asian American woman in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who was raped and murdered by two black teenagers, 17-year-old Kamare Lewis and 15-year-old Kevin Spencer. March 23rd, 2021, you might remember this one, Jacob, Muhammad Anwar, a 66-year-old Pakistani immigrant who was carjacked in Washington, D.C. by two black teenage girls, ages 13 and 15, who drove off with the car while he was hanging onto the door trying to stop them, trying to save his car, and some bystander was filming it. And they sped off and slammed into a wall and the car turned over. His body was crushed by the car and thrown against the wall. And you can see in the video footage, like his bloody broken body just lying on the ground there. And the two girls unfortunately survived the crash uh, and they're pulled out of the car by other bystanders. And you remember one of them screaming in the video, hysterically screaming, my phone is in there, my phone is in there. Like you literally just murdered a man and all you care about is that your phone is in the car. Like, well, the car wasn't even on fire or anything. It's not about to explode like this is a Mission Impossible movie. She just couldn't stand being away from her phone for five seconds. So that uh, was one case. April 23rd, 2021, Yao Pan Ma, a 61 year old Chinese American man, was attacked in East Harlem, New York by 49 year old Jared Powell an African-American. Ma survived the initial attack, but died of his injuries eight months later on December 31st. That must have been an agonizing eight months, by the way. Oh, my God. And then January 15th, 2022, Michelle Goh, a 40-year-old Asian-American woman 
who was pushed onto a subway track into the path of an oncoming train by Marshall Simon, a homeless black man in New York City. So all, every single one of these, without fail, the culprits were black, were African-Americans. But that's all, just one reason. In addition to the obvious failure of the narrative that they wanted to create, oh, it's white people, it's those uninformed white Trump supporters who are just mad because the coronavirus came from China. That obviously failed in of itself because of all these examples. But the fact remains that realistically, as defined by its original definition created by black activists, woke can only exist when the narrative is that the oppression these people are facing is systematic, is something that has been deeply rooted in America for many years. The, the legacy of slavery and segregation and all that stuff still persisting in institution, in education, in uh, corporate America and what have you. And the fact of the matter is that very simply, Asians, like Hispanics, just do not have as long of a history in this country as African Americans do. They're not as deeply tied to the history of the United States of America. There were no Asian slaves. There was no civil war fought to free the Asians. There never was a civil rights movement for Asians. And the same all goes for Hispanics. This goes back to something you said a while ago, I think, uh, off the air, Jacob, but I think is, is very important to point out, that realistically, there are only three ethnicities that can and should be considered American, that are intrinsically, irrevocably tied to the foundation and the long-term history of this country. And what are those three ethnicities, Jacob? Well, you have Americans, which the foundational stock for Americans are English-speaking people of British descent, but anyone can be can become an American regardless of their ethnic or racial background. And then you have African Americans who are the descendants of slaves. They created their own ethnicity in this country in the 1700s and the early 1800s. It kind of formed around English-speaking descendants of Africans brought over here um, from Africa as slaves. They created their own separate dialect, their own culture, their own ethnicity. So those are really the only two ethnicities that are native to the United States. And of course, you have the different ethnicities within the Native American Indian tribes. But those are like you got hundreds or nowadays probably dozens of yeah. different ethnicities within the Native Americans. But two, it's really just Americans two, yeah. and African-Americans. It, it, the same just does not apply to Asian-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, uh, Middle Eastern Americans. Like there just is not. No, because no, they all history. assimilate into our ethnicity. Like if you meet someone of Vietnamese descent, they are as American as any white person. Like they have assimilated into our culture. They speak with our accent. Like they have, I mean, same way with a lot of Jamaicans who grow up in the black community, they assimilate into black American culture. Exactly. So ergo, woke can only really apply between these two, as you said, but obviously it's not going to apply to white Americans anytime soon, can only apply to African Americans. Uh, it's pretty clear the Native Americans want nothing to do with this. You know, they've got their own situation worked out pretty well here. It is a concept, as you said, created by African Americans for African Americans. So lastly, before we uh, wrap up here, this, this deep dive into the truth about woke, we got to, again, look at the culprits. And we talked about, we opened, of course, with Bethany Mandel, and we looked at other examples like IJR and the Babylon Bee that just fundamentally do not understand what woke means. Who is perhaps the biggest culprit of the misunderstanding of woke? It's a name you may have heard in recent uh, weeks for other reasons. A fellow by the name of Vivek Ramaswamy. Yes, that one, the one who is running for president now as a Republican. Who is Vivek Ramaswamy? He was born in Ohio as the son of Indian immigrants and is the founder of biotech company Royvant Sciences 
and currently serves as the founder of Strive Asset Management. He very much, this is kind of in line, you know, his business background. He is independently wealthy on his own. He is focusing heavily on ESG, that's environmental, social, and corporate governance, the hard left principles that sees companies try to adhere to like, oh, we're we're good on diversity hires and we're we're pursuing green energy and stuff like that. So he's writing very extensively about that. But besides, even before that, he has made a name for himself as supposedly the leading expert on wokeism and identity politics. He's written two books on this subject called Woke Inc. and Nation of Victims. Just for a little bit of political background here, again, addressing the fact that he is uh, running for president, which I did not expect to happen in all honesty. I was quite surprised when I saw he jumped in. He previously was the subject of speculation that as an Ohio native, he might have run for the U.S. Senate in 2022 or that he could have done again in this upcoming Senate election, Ohio, in 2024. The Cincinnati Inquirer even compared Ramaswamy's life story to that of Senator J.D. Vance, who won the 2022 election. Quote, a Butler County native with Ivy League schooling who's successful in business in his mid-30s and writes a socioeconomic nonfiction book, it becomes a bestseller and he becomes a popular talk show guest, especially on Fox News, and soon the subject of speculation about his political future. Ramaswamy then ultimately announced his bid for president on Tucker Carlson's show, and we're going to play just a little bit of that here. Uh, this Tucker, of course, asks him, the, this is the opening salvo, uh, what do you want to say to voters as you embark on your campaign? And this is Ramaswamy's response. I think we need to put merit back into America in every sphere of our lives. I mean, merit who in who gets into this country. Let's start with that, okay? I think more people like my parents can be a good thing for this country. But it, people whose first act of entering this country as a law-breaking one, we should say a hard no to that. Okay, so so first off, I mean, I, the first thing I noticed, actually, I'm sure, Jacob, I can tell you have your thoughts already, and I'll let you go in just a minute, but... I don't know about you. Uh, again, this is audio only, but we'll have the link to the description below, as always. He comes across in this video, not just his voice, but his facial expressions, his body language. He comes across as angry. This guy comes across as, like, he is really mad as he is making this point, like... To me, it's very unsettling. This is how, this is his opening. This is his announcement of his campaign. And he retweeted this himself. He posted this on Twitter. This is how you, your presentation is? That you're basically going to yell at Tucker even though he's a few feet away from you? Like, it, that just conveys that he's not, does, does not have what it takes to be good on the campaign trail. I think on that aspect, it's probably a matter of him buying into the whole notion that most of Tucker's audience are angry white people full of white rage and he's got to try to <laughs> tap into some of that rage and show that he's just as angry as they are about people coming into this country who don't deserve to come into this country who aren't like his parents who did deserve to come to this country <laughs> and that's basically the the gist of what he's talking about by mentioning his parents this is the way you'll see a lot of nationalist children of immigrants when they want to try to benefit from the anti-immigrant sentiment they'll basically say yes we need to close the door to immigrants but people like my parents they were okay we can let in people like them oh my goodness yeah and that that is his first that's the first topic he brings up is immigration not anything else because he does mention other more niche topics that he runs on like he, he is very much against affirmative action he talks about um campaigning against a federal digital currency which that that's as that's as niche as it gets right there but which by the way i do want to say that i read his his op-ed in the wall street journal and it's a very very good plan like i I've, no, I've nothing against his his plan that he laid out in the wall street journal i think he's got a really good platform i think um yeah his actual platform when you get down to it is not bad i'm not we we are dunking on him here for the purposes of again his misrepresentation of woke and these little nitpicks about his presentation but when you get down to it so far he is the second best republican running for president that's for sure uh, i'm like oh, among, for sure yeah among other things he did actually when the reports first broke 
that uh, President Trump might be arrested by the Manhattan DA. He came out and unequivocally condemned it. And in the tweet uh, featuring the, his video remarks, he actually tagged both Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis and called on them. He's like, I want these establishment politicians to to acknowledge it as well and, and stand with me and stand behind President Trump on this issue. So good for him for that. He is definitely refraining from attacking Trump, which is good. Um well, I just I do want to point out this is this is kind of a, a feature of a lot of Indian immigrants. I remember when I was an Uber driver in D.C., I picked up a few Indian guys, and one of them was wondering if he should become. Uh, they were talking about politics. Uh, a couple of them were Republicans. One of them didn't know what he wanted to do. He just knew he wanted to go into politics and work in politics. He said, "So, uh, what if I call myself a new Democrat?" And they were like, "No, no, no. You don't need to try to redefine yourself. Just go with whatever. If you want to be a Democrat, just be a regular Democrat. Fit into the mainstream Democratic Party. That's the best way to get ahead." Like they were. Republicans themselves, but they're like, no, no, you need to, you just need to be a, like a mainstream Democrat. We're just mainstream Republicans. And this is just kind of a feature of, of their culture. They will do, like, you, you'll have Indians, if, if white supremacy ever took over in this country, you would have Indians lining up to be the spokespeople of white supremacy. Like they would, they will conform to be whatever they need to be to get ahead. That's why so many Indians around liberals, around white liberals, they immediately latch on to social justice uh, warriorism, you know they'll they'll be the biggest social justice warriors, and it's it's very obvious they're just doing what they need to do to get ahead in their circles. <laughs> so real quick, again, we do want to analyze his candidacy here just for a moment. Um, they, when I, when he announced his run, I was kind of surprised. I had friends of mine saying, "Oh, guess he wants a book deal, right?" Oh, and I'm like, "He's already written two. Okay, this is clearly not about a book deal." Um, I mean, in all seriousness, he's clearly he's got next to no name recognition outside of the niche Fox audience. He has no history or profile to build a following off of. And again, he's competing against a former president, not to mention other well-known names who have jumped in and are sure to jump in. Maybe he's just running for a cabinet position. Most likely. If not, that's not always a go-to answer. That's probably the explanation. I have to respond to the Inquirer's attempts to compare him to J.D. Vance, though, because that really grinds my gears a little bit. And not just because I'm a huge fan of J.D. Vance. There's fundamental differences here. First off, Vance at least knew to start relatively small in his political career. He ran for statewide office first. He did not immediately dive into the presidency. He ran certainly to represent his home state, Ohio, in the Senate. He struggled in the primary. Trump endorsed him. He won the nomination, and he won the general election decisively. He he knew, I've got to start small before I dive right into the into the deep end of the big pool. Secondly, of course, big one, Vance did not run against President Trump. And thus, he was capable of being endorsed by Trump. Trump's not going to endorse Ramaswamy in this race for obvious reasons. So, of course, Vance was able to go into a race where he knew he could attach himself to the Trump movement, get Trump's endorsement, which he did, and win the election. Third, and most crucially, the differences between Ramaswamy's books and Vance's book, Hillbilly Elegy. Again, I have read it. It's the first nonfiction book, political book, I have read in a long time. First book in general I have read in a long time that I loved. I could not put it down. It was incredible to read. I highly recommend it to everybody. And I heard the movie version on Netflix is good as well. So if people don't want to read the book, they can watch the movie. Hillbilly Elegy, of course, is a historic and significant explanation of the struggles of the white working class in the Rust Belt in Appalachia and how they channeled that longtime depression and rage into turning out for Trump to give him that historic victory in 2016. It's a comprehensive study of one of the most important sociopolitical developments of recent history. But even before that, the book Hillbilly Elegy is first and foremost an autobiography. It is the story of J.D. Vance's life, his rags to riches story, which also focuses on his immediate family. 
and the people who made him who he is today, his grandparents, his mother, his sister, and so on and so forth. It's a personal story. As such, throughout this novel, people not only get a clear picture of the struggle of the white working class that led to President Trump, they get to become more familiar with J.D. Vance as a person. They become uh, acquainted with his grandma, Mamma Vance, as uh, he called her. That referring to one's grandmother as Mamma is it is an aspect of Appalachia because <laughs> I grew up in southern Alabama, which is very different culturally from Appalachia. And of course, the Appalachian Mountains, they stretch into northern Alabama a little bit. And of course, the Scots-Irish, they kind of followed the mountain range. So, but I went to college at the University of North Alabama with a lot of people who came from that culture. And that was actually the first time that I ever heard the word mammal <laughs> to describe one's grandmother. So that, that is definitely a feature of Appalachia, whether it's in northern Alabama or in Pennsylvania or Ohio. Yeah. By contrast, Ramaswamy's books, while informative— are not autobiographies. They're your typical, run-of-the-mill, non-fiction political books that are a dime a dozen on Fox News. We've all seen books with the same general variation of the title, you know, How to Fight the Left 101, uh, How Can We Combat Wokeness, you know, How to Save America, like all these books, all these generic titles that everybody's trying to sell and get on Fox News to show for their book and make some money. Those books, I haven't read them, I'll admit, I, I can't attest to the quality of how the, well they're written, but I can guarantee you because they're not autobiographies, they're not going to have that personal appeal that something like Hillbilly Elegy did. I'm sure he hired the very best ghostwriters that money can buy. <laughs> um, a friend of mine actually once said, I think very uh, interestingly, Ramaswamy could ultimately come out of this as a right-wing version of Andrew Yang. And I think that's actually a pretty good comparison. For those of you guys who don't remember Andrew Yang, of course, he was a small-time candidate, a businessman, and an author whose first bid for public office ever was to run for president. He ran as a Democrat in 2020 through a very niche campaign. He surprisingly did gain some traction while still remaining outside the top tier. He was never a serious contender, but of course he ran as a Democrat, basically advocating for a universal basic income, UBI, that like every American citizen gets a free $1,000 a month, no strings attached. I'll never forget, though, when he he... Came up with that idea, UBI, universal basic income, and then when he made it to the debate stage, he had to Americanize the term. He had to give it an American name. He called it the Freedom Dividend. And in his first debate, first primary debate with Andrew Yang, he gave his opening statement, and he ended his statement shilling for his signature UBI plan. He called it Freedom Dividend, and the crowd in that debate laughed at him they literally started laughing and you could see it in his face at that moment like he was never a serious candidate he was never going to win <laughs> and where did that get him after losing the nomination for president he abandoned his attempt to climb a mountain in favor of trying to scale a molehill but he tripped over that molehill too he tried to run for mayor of new york city in the very next year because they have off-year elections in 2021 and he burst out the gate initially with all the momentum he had name recognition he had funding some of it self-funded because, again, he too, like Ramaswamy, like Vance, was independently wealthy. He initially, it looked like for a while, they're like he was going to be mayor of New York. Mayor Yang, everybody, every New Yorker was going to get that free grand every month. But kind of like a Mo Brooks or like Eric Greitens in Missouri, like those candidacies, Yang crashed and burned spectacularly after wasting all the momentum early on and realizing, oh, just name recognition alone and a uniquely online niche campaign – is not going to be enough to win in a city like New York. He did not understand New York politics in the slightest, and he came in a pitiful fourth place before essentially announcing his retirement from politics forever. So will Ramaswamy go this route? I don't know, not necessarily. 
I mean, he probably has a little more staying power than someone like Andrew Yang because now he is, again, he's certainly more popular on Fox News. And he, as we said, he could be angling for a cabinet position in the Trump administration. You know, Yang obviously did not get that with the Biden administration. So I don't know if Ramaswamy will crash and burn necessarily, but he's not to be looked at as a, certainly not as a threat to Trump. And again, if nothing else, he could be one of the better non-Trump candidates who will run this cycle. But the reason he's problematic, again, is we talked about how he could be the lead purveyor of the misperceptions of wokeness. Again, his first book is Woke Inc. And this phrase has essentially become synonymous with his brand. Politico actually did a profile on him right before he announced for president, calling him, quote, one of the intellectual godfathers of the anti-woke movement, end quote. And the New Yorker called him, quote, the CEO of Anti-Woke Inc., end quote. And Jacob, I know you've got some thoughts on this guy because actually way back in December of 2021 uh, on Gab, on our Gab page at the Right Take, you actually made a very interesting post about Ramaswamy before he, again, this is before he was ever considering running for office. Again, people were talking about him running for Senate maybe, but that was about it. And you posted this piece with a link to a Breitbart article featuring a, an interview by Ramaswamy. And you had, a, I think it proved to be very, very uh, appropriate given where he is now and what he's doing now. So uh, what is it you said in that uh, Gab post, Jacob? So the thing about a lot of immigrants is the or the children of immigrants or the grandchildren of immigrants, this the woke ideology is a threat not just to us, but it is a threat to them and the idea that they have been led to believe that America represents. Because in their minds, people, especially people who came to this country after World War II, they've been brainwashed to believe that America is an idea. They don't see America as a real place or with a real people, with a real ethnicity. They just see it as this experiment because that's what they've been indoctrinated to believe. It's basically a capitalist experiment, a democratic capitalist experiment. So the the idea, the, the woke ideology from the native black population is a threat to that idea because it's seeking reparations from all of America to go specifically to black Americans to pay them back for all the harm that was done to them. And a lot of immigrants are like, well, wait a minute, we weren't even in this country. Like our ancestors weren't in this country when slavery happened. We need to bring America back to the idea that it's a capitalist utopia for everyone. And so this was this was basically my my take on it is that he doesn't believe that America is even a real place. He just believes that it's an idea. And this is pretty much the direction that civic nationalists on many mainstream right wing outlets want to take. And this is the way the direction that they want to push the right. They want to push the right back into the classical liberal view that it's just a democratic experiment. It's, a, you know, a it's something that's based on an idea of freedom, just a very ethereal idea of freedom that anyone can come here and you know succeed if they're hardworking enough and they're entrepreneurial enough. And it kind of ties into Ramaswamy's view that we need to have merit-based immigration. Because if you have merit-based immigration, then highly successful people in India, Japan, China, Brazil, they can all come here. But people who are not highly successful in their countries, who don't have college degrees, who aren't going to found tech firms, they can't come here. So what's going to end up happening? Well, you're going to end up having the Native American population, whose ancestors go back hundreds of years in this country, they're going to end up waiting tables for the immigrant population that has come here on the basis of their merit. So basically brain drain is what he supports. He yes. supports brain drain from other countries. So those people basically creating a foreign elite in this country that's going to dominate the tech industry, which is already kind of the case. They're going to dominate the banking industry. They're going to dominate every major industry that pays six figures while the native born Americans wait on tables or 
build the houses or take out the trash, you know, that type of thing. So when you look at immigration policy, if you want to really have an America first immigration policy, you need to cut immigration across the board for both white collar and blue collar professions so that most white collar and blue collar professions are filled by native born American citizens. But if you believe that America is an idea, then native born American citizens don't really matter any more than anyone in India who aspires to move to America. So this is the problem with people like Ramaswamy. This is the problem with people like Nikki Haley. This Mm -hmm. is the problem with pretty much anybody, any immigrant in this country who doesn't have a nationalist view, like who doesn't believe that America is a real place with a real people with a native ethnicity and doesn't want his children to become part of that ethnicity. They just see it as a pretty much just a capitalist utopia. Exactly. And this ties back again that we were that was back in December of 2021. So well over a year now. And it was a Breitbart piece. And it ties back into one key excerpt from the Politico piece, this long uh, profile on him by Politico right before he ran Uh, this quote right here. Quote, I believe that I've developed a vision for American national identity that I have deep conviction for and is the product of my own journey of having lived the gifts that this country has afforded me. Ramaswamy said as he munched on veggie enchiladas at a Mexican restaurant in an Iowa strip mall, end quote. And that really is right there in a nutshell. To him, American national identity and American capitalism are the same thing. When, of course, that is not all. America is not was not founded. The founding fathers did not declare we are a capitalist nation first and foremost. This goes back to that amazing debate between Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson on, you know, is a free market capitalist system the end goal? Is that the ultimate end result of what we want America to be? Or is that is capitalism just another tool to achieve a greater society beyond whatever our economic system is? And of course, Tucker took the correct stance that America is a nation. It has a history. It is more than just an economic zone. And of course, Shapiro, no surprise, took the the stance that, you know, it's all about just make as much money as possible and, you know, go, you know, as Shapiro said, go on an adventure to go move to a big city and find a new job, which Carlson just slapped right down as like, oh, yeah, leave the town of your parents and grandparents grave and go to some big city to live in an apartment and become a cog in some machine like just Carlson is always so spot on with this. But well, in this quote, Ramaswamy is being arrogant without even trying to be. Yeah, I don't think he realizes how arrogant this comes off because in the in, in the post-George Floyd America that we've all had to suffer through. <laughs> we, we live in a country where the average American doesn't know if America even has a national identity. Yes. The average American has been brainwashed to believe that America does not have a national identity. Americans don't have any culture. How many times have you heard, did you ever hear growing up, Americans don't have any culture? Yep. Like America's oh, just yeah. the melting pot of other cultures. Everything we have, we uh, we owe to other cultures. So if if millions of Americans have been brainwashed to believe that America has no culture, America has no national language, even though we have a very unique dialect and accent of the English language, that America has no history, and it's not it, the little bit of history that it has is not worth preserving. If, if Americans have been brainwashed to believe that, then someone like Ramaswamy comes along, and they're like, okay, well, if we lack a national identity, what's going to end up happening is you're going to have angry minorities, like the 47% of black Americans, demanding that because of past grievances, they should be paid reparation. And Ramaswamy, who is a very high-achieving, hardworking immigrant or son of immigrants, he takes the position that, wait a minute, I shouldn't have to pay any more taxes to support them. I need to develop my own vision of an American national identity to counteract that. 
but we already have an American national identity. We don't need to f- find uh, political entrepreneurs like Ramaswamy who can create new visions of American national identity. All we need to do is tap into the national identity that's already there that has been buried by leftist academics. That's so true. Like you said, the arrogance that this guy comes along 240-something years after our founding to say, I have developed a vision for American national identity. I'm like, no, I'll stick with what the founders wanted. Thank you very much. Like, I'm sorry. Again, I part of me wants to like this guy because, like I said, he's pro-Trump. He's His ideas are—his policy positions are good, the things he wants to do. Again, he, he says that his top issue is get rid of affirmative action, which that's based. We should support that. But then he says stuff like this, and I'm sorry. And yeah, on top of the career of just making money and building a profile— off of misrepresenting something as important as woke, something as important and dangerous as what woke See, really this means. is what conservatives, yeah, well, this is what conservatives have sold him that the idea of America is. So, you know, and he is being arrogant, but I don't really blame him because he has been sold this idea by conservatives that America is based on capitalism, that we don't really have a national identity other than just making money. So he figures, well, I need to create a national identity for Americans to cling to, and I'll just call that uh, meritocracy you know we'll just create a national identity around meritocracy but um but yeah this is really a failure of conservatism to build its ideology around the soil around the history around nationalism exactly exactly and until we understand that and again understand the enemy here as the famous sun tzu quote says know your enemy and know yourself and you need not fear the result of 100 battles and that's exactly what we need here we need to know ourselves know what America is, the history of it, and what really makes America America, the true reasons for our national identity, and know the enemy. In this case, know what wokeism means and its offshoots, critical race theory, Black Lives Matter. When you understand it, that's when they start losing their minds. We saw political victories into response to that in Virginia. We know it's doable. It is possible. We just need to do it again. So that is all the time we have left for this special episode, the third edition of The Long Take, episode 94 here of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to follow us for all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of social media websites and podcast platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, if ever you guys are feeling oh so generous and want to continue supporting us and all that we do here and for you on the show, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.